Hello and welcome to this all-new episode of Poetry Spoken Here. I am producer and technical director Jack Rossiter-Munley. And very quickly before we get into the episode, I just wanted to mention as always that Poetry Spoken Here is produced by Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated, a small digital production company making podcasts about poetry, literature, and cultural history. You can find out more about Poetry Spoken Here and all of the other Cardboard Box Productions podcasts at cardboardboxproductionsinc.com. And most excitingly, Cardboard Box Productions also has a newsletter called Unboxed that you can subscribe to, and that's a great place to get more information about the poets and writers featured on Poetry Spoken Here, and the people, poems, and subjects featured on all of the other Cardboard Box shows. So again, that's the newsletter Unboxed that you can subscribe to from CardboardBoxProductionsInc.com. On with the show. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Today, I am really pleased to have Luis J. Rodriguez as our featured poet. He's written 16 books in all genres, including eight books of poetry. And his latest poetry book is Borrowed Bones from Curbstone Press. He also has a new book of essays that uh, we'll probably be talking about before we're finished. He also runs Tia Chucha Press. That's been going on for 30 years, which is a great accomplishment for a small press. And he does a lot of readings, workshops, and healing circles in writings in prison, jails, and juvenile lockups. And he was the Poet Laureate of Los Angeles from 2014 to 2016. So, Luis, I'm really glad you're here. I don't get to talk to you much since we both lived in Chicago. but. <laughs> yeah, Thank you for inviting me. This is going to be great. You know, I love poetry so much. So this is perfect. And interestingly, we are recording this on the 20th of January. So we just had the pleasure of watching Joe Biden take the oath of office and hear the inaugural poet, who's a friend of yours, read her wonderful poem. And I thought I asked to start out when I was looking on your website, I happened to notice, I won't usually do this, but I click on the blogs and you had a blog on election day mm -hmm. and quite inspiring words and talking about some wild situations you were in, in South America on uh, earlier other elections, you know? Talk about voting fraud in this country, you have no idea. You don't know what vote fraud is, you know what I mean? And uh, when you go to the, out of these countries and it's unfortunate, uh, you could see people being killed, ballots and rivers, uh, people being bussed in to vote who were you know, supposed to. You see the most amazing things. But what I also saw was how people believed in that process. And they went out to vote. And this is uh, in Oaxaca, in Mexico, where the indigenous people put on their best clothes, you know, did the best hair disco, line up to vote. Bullets were flying everywhere. Things were going crazy. And they were there really quietly just to vote. I go, you have no idea how important the vote is in those countries, but also how important it is. You know, people complain about, I don't want to vote, or or even so-called voter fraud. You have no idea what voter fraud is. <clears throat> yeah, you said they brought in whole busloads of people to vote in different districts, and meanwhile shooting. I mean, come on. People were getting killed on election day. That's what happens in a lot of these countries. And, you know, and I get it. We're, we're probably responsible. <laughs> we do our stuff out there. It's us. But... Uh, and that's why I, I, I try to tell those stories. But I also think, you know, 
Voting's got a lot of problems in this country, but people fight hard for it. And I'm gonna vote. You know what I mean? I'm gonna make the most of whatever we had to get. We had to, you know, make the most of it. Yeah, it was it was great to see that that you know you look at this. I'm looking at a poet's blog, and you're giving these inspiring words for people to get out and vote. <laughs> yeah, but then again, you're an activist as well as a poet, and you always kind of merge those two in your life. They're just who you are. Be critiquing government and society. Have an answer. Have a vision. You know what I'm saying? I mean, people complain about government all the time. Most of this, it makes sense. But most people don't have an answer. And obviously what happened January 6th, where the answer is, let's just hang all these people. Let's just go in there and destroy what they got. I mean, that's like, okay, that's not an answer. That's just you having a tantrum with several hundred million thousands of other people. And it's not, it doesn't make sense. Have a vision. Where are you going to take our country? What do you want to do with it? Uh, there's a lot of flaws in our country. I'm the first one to admit it. and But there's a lot of reasons to work to make it equitable for everybody and it's worth it yeah um, unfortunately we we heard a lot of that today at the inaugural uh, event which was encouraging it is encouraging i mean you know you know how it's encouraging compared to anything we had the last four years <laughs> yeah right i actually think that joe biden is not the same guy as even a few months ago i think he's uh He's evolving in his age, 78 years old, the oldest president in the U.S. I think he's evolving. How far he goes, we'll see. But I think he's evolving, and I think that we have to be there and, you know, push him and make him accountable like everybody else. But, man, after Trump, well, you couldn't make him accountable no matter what he did. You know, I think barely now he might hear some of it, but still, it was like one bad thing after another. And it's like, you know, anyway, this is going to be a new day, so. Yeah. Well, let's start. Let's get a poem in here on the bright new day. <laughs> Whatever you want to read. I want to read a poem that I wrote. It hasn't been published yet, but it's been um, my work in the prisons means a lot to me. And I have not been able to get back in prison since April because of the COVID. Right. And uh, I feel bad for these guys and women behind bars that I used to work with and do creative writing classes. I don't hear from them. I'm still doing lesson plans for them. But we don't know what's going on. And um, I think 65, maybe more uh, people in California prisons have died of COVID. Thousands have been hit with COVID. It's really sad. But I want to read this poem that I wrote before all that. This is a poem called Make a Poem Cry. And it actually comes from a, a, a writing from one of the incarcerated poets, Jimmy McMillan, who was in one of my classes. He's still there behind bars. And it starts out with this. I can't see him coming from my eye. So I had to make this poem cry. So here's the poem. You can chain the body, the face, the eyes, the way hands move coarsely over cement or deftly on tattooed skin with needle. You can cage the withered membrane, the withered dream, the way razor wire shouts, yells, and batons can wither spirit. But how can you imprison a poem? How can a melody be locked up, locked down? Yes, even caged birds sing, even grass sprouts through asphalt, even a flower blooms in a desert. And the gardens of trauma we call the incarcerated can also spring with the vitality of a deep thought, an emotion buried beneath the facades, deep as rage, deep as grief, the grief beneath all rages. The blood of such poems, songs, emotions, thoughts, 
dances are what flow in all art, stages, films, books. The keys to liberation are in the heart and the mind behind the cranial sky. The imagination is boundless, the inexhaustible in any imprisoned system. And remember, we are all in some kind of prison. If only the contrived freedom society professes can flow from such water. Mm. So that's my yeah. the men and women who are still behind bars, still suffering. COVID has hit us badly, as you know, in this country, but the people behind bars are even getting it worse and, and there's not much being done, uh, you know, as it should be done. Yeah, I've heard a couple of reports where they were suggesting that actually incarcerated folks should be high on the priority list because they're in such an endangered situation. But that's where we're at. And those voices are important. I'm going to prison for uh, some of the best people I've met on prison. I know it's hard people can imagine. I work with high security prisons. I work with murderers. I work with, you know, heart rob, rob you know, big robbers, whatever. But some of the most decent people are in there. Yeah. You know, something you said, uh, you know, if people don't know your background, uh, Luis used to be a gangbanger out there in LA and is, is uh, it's known to a lot of people, but if you don't know it, that's a fact. And you mentioned that you weren't scared straight, you were cared straight. And I thought that was really, you weren't afraid, it. they couldn't scare you because you weren't scared of anything. The problem, it's sad that those young people who weren't scared of dying, aren't scared of heroin, aren't scared of prison. They should be scared, but there's a lot of young people that are not. They're in, a, they're in like on a suicide homicide road that they don't even know how to get out of. And I do a lot of work trying to pull them out, trying to help them. I don't try to save kids as much as I give them the imagination, the connections and tools so they can save themselves. That to me is more important. But uh, I was one of those kids and I was on heroin for seven years, in and out of jail, juvenile hall, um, in the streets, uh, I've been shot at and fortunately never got hit, which is really the strangest thing. Uh, I've been um, I've shot at people. I've been in really bad shape. I got pulled out by a mentor and one or two teachers who cared. You know what I'm saying? It's one or two that really hang by you. Most people don't, and I don't even blame them. My parents threw me out of the house for 15. Nobody wanted to do with me. I get it. I, I don't even argue with that. But the ones that hang in there in spite of that was something, and it helped me to the point where I made the decision at a young age to get out of all that, it's, which is better because a lot of people don't get out. You know how that goes. Uh, yeah, you really did a turnaround, and as you said, a couple of important uh, people who had faith exactly. and saw the value in you as a person. And that's what's important to me. Human beings are valuable. They make mistakes, and they don't have to keep reliving those mistakes or have it to try. We need to be valued all the time as human beings and given, again, whatever resources they need so they can be better human beings. You know, can't give up on people. Whenever there's human beings, I always say, wherever there's a human being, there's humanity. So just build on that. Yeah, yeah. Let's have another poem. Oh, the other poem I thought, I wasn't going to read this poem, but I thought maybe I will since we brought it up. I, I, I don't always write about heroin because... I just don't, I write in my memoir and everything, but I, I decided to write a poem on it, so I'm going to read it. It's, it hasn't been published yet, but it's called The Peace of Death and Life. Um, heroin soundtrack, Bitches Blue. 
trumpets like trains squealing around a bend. The way rainwater murmurs along a concrete river, skulls whispering into sleep. Pain awash and glows from the tip of the toes through legs streaming through the pit of his stomach, coloring the whole body in hazy blue wash. Miles knew the cords to blow. I chipped to soften the edge when things got bad. When it did, I didn't want to be around anyone stashed among my own edit and score, loitering inside my own high and my own morose pose. Yet Micaela and homie Sharky often joined even a hyena or two and strangers as raindrops fell. I recall the headstones of Evergreen Cemetery where I leaned back to nod and scribble and torn pieces of paper, poems tracked with collapsed veins. I recall my small garage room with no running water or heat and feeling the peace of death cover me as a white sheet in my collapse. The shadows felt so compelling. Even when I stopped breathing and homeboys forced me up, ice and pits and groin, milk injected to unsing the song. To quit, I had to accept never ending ache. Numbness only meant demise. Now constant pain is constant reminder, a holy surrender. Life is pain, pain is life. When the pain's gone, so am I. Well, your poetry, your poetry is, is really vivid. You know, I, uh, I get, I feel like I get the picture when I hear your poetry. I was reading, I was reading that one. Uh, is it heavy? Tells a story. We probably don't share a lot of experiences, but experience we share is I worked at Bethlehem Steel one summer, and it took me right into the bunks and you know the benches in the restroom and some dude telling a story just like heavy it was just really real <laughs> four years in la Bethlehem is back east but they had a big la plant and at one point had twenty thousand people working there. of course it died in 1981 it closed down uh but it was um quite a job <laughs> and i remember when i got that job i just got married to my wife was pregnant I had to perform with my hard hat and the safety glasses and the boots, and I was a, a millwright apprentice. Right? So it was like the perfect job. I thought, oh my God, I made it now. I'll, I'll be able to work this out for 30, 40 years. I thought I had it made in, in, in four or five years. The job was done. It was 2,000 people by the time I got out. Really so, yeah, I remember those jobs. They were important. They kept us going. They all went away for them. Very few of my life. Hey, in another interview, you know, someone said, what's important to you in poetry? And you started off with truth. Say you can write a poem, I'm speaking like a tree. Obviously, you're not a tree. But there's truth in that, what you're saying about that truth. It's got, truth is just endemic to poetry. You can't really lie, like really say a lie. You know? uh, so I think that's what's important about it. Because there's so much lying in it. politics, newspapers. I mean, you know, when Trump talked about fake news, part of me says, of course it's fake news. <laughs> but he was the fakest news around. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, so we need to talk about truth and poetry is really about. Well, as you're saying, like you're saying also, like that's I'm sure that's a whether people know it or not, a bit of what they were responding to with the poem during the inauguration ceremony. The truth. I think it's that's what poetry to me really is. It's really uh, when nobody else is telling the truth and you can't really trust too many language, poetry has to be trusted. And language is the best way to say that trust. Actually, actually, you did a good one. 
they didn't put it in in the order, but you ended up saying goodness, truth, and beauty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think those are. I, I always tell people, how do you judge anybody? Because you know how many people claim to be patriots and good Christians, and they claim to be good people. We're the good guys. And I go, oh, you can't judge people by what they think themselves. So bring more beauty, bring more truth, bring more goodness. Those are three things that all human beings should do. Maybe you make a mistake. Maybe you you, you didn't do the right thing. Uh, but that's what you should strive. Yeah. Yeah. Good rule. Good simple rule of thumb. <laughs> There's like three commandments instead of ten. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, to me, it's important for us to just discern because everybody's claiming to be patriots. Everybody's claiming to be Christians. And wait, don't you get short? You can't just talk it. You know what I'm saying? And some people I know, okay, I, I'm I'm I, I'm into spiritual matters. I love them very much, but I don't think saying you're a Christian makes you safe how you walk this world. You're, what you're teaching has been examples of what you can do for the world. That's the same for a Buddhist, same for a Muslim, same for anybody. You know, and if you if you're an atheist, that's still good for you. <laughs> you're an atheist, just be a decent human being for crying out loud. You know. Sure. Well, you know, I, I wanted to do another poem, and um, and I thought I would do. I love these really. I don't know why I was thinking about my kids. Uh, I like to do a poem to my youngest son. I have poems to all my kids. I have four kids, five grand, uh, great uh, grandkids, and five great grandkids. So my family's growing. But my two younger sons is with my current wife, Trina, and we've been together for thirty-five years. So this is a. Um, important relationship and they're all grown men and women my son and my daughter I have two sons and a daughter they're all grown but I want to do this poem it's called Moonlight Water and it's dedicated to my youngest son Ruben and Louise and it goes like this Ruben recalled the day I brought mama and his baby brother home when he was six in the back seat of the car he said was an Asian looking child hair sticking up straight on his head Chito short for Luisito Look this way because he's part Radamani and Wichol, but mostly all universe. Ruben must have wondered about the galaxy of stars, bird songs, and stories that had been dreamt to fashion such a boy. When Chito arrived, I'm sure Ruben knew his world would never be the same. Until then, Ruben had been our only child. To mom and dad, he was the screech of car brakes, a sigh to a bad joke, the glove to our ball, and now this. A bewildered boy gazing at a sweet-faced child, earth child, wrapped in a light blue blanket. I asked Romito and Ruben what he thought about his brother. Eyes gleaming with a six-year-old's clarity, he answered, oh, I already knew him. I saw Chito when I was in Mama's stomach. I gave Ruben a look I often offered in reply to his amazing observations. Somehow, though, the statement rang true. His younger brother was in the wings, preparing to part the next one, patiently abiding his turn. As they grew older, Chito followed his brother's every move, entering wide-eyed into Ruben's dense fear, sharing the same music, games, imaginings. Ruben never hurt or exploited him, as older brothers often do. The boys connected from the start, brothers since the womb, like hummingbird to flower, like breath to poems, like moonlight water ah uh, uh, yeah so that's an old to the two youngest sons you know uh lovely yeah it's always nice to get those personal 
kind of poems into your whole mix of what you write about, you know. I have a lot of things to say about the world and society and everything and, and even my own life, but it's just this poem about something sweet in my life and I wanted to write about it. You, know? you mentioned another thing I found that I thought was real interesting because for some time when you were kind of just roughing it out on the streets, but then you would go to the libraries because you knew books were the thing, you know? And you mentioned that a teacher read Charlotte's Web and just blew you away. Were you like 10 years old or something? Yeah, the first only time a teacher ever read a book out loud, which I think most teachers should do. Reading books out loud is amazing. She read it, and I, I don't know about the other kids, I was totally mesmerized. I was like, wow, I wanted more of that. And at 10 years old, I was already kind of lost, already bad shape, but I wanted more. And even though I was in the street, and like I said, I was in jail and everything else, those library, that library, especially in downtown LA, that central library was my refuge. I would be homeless, but I would be all day, hours reading. And it helped, it saved my life. If you think about it, books opened up in my, my imagination, my hope, my dreams. I even had the idea, maybe I could write a book, which is kind of a crazy idea. And now there's shelves with my names and my books up there. I never would imagine at that age, when I was 15, that I could, could ever have books there, but here it is. And that's what's important to me, that uh, the books opened up a door, a big door that I went through. Somehow I made it through that door. Yeah. Do you remember any particular things that you read at that kind of period? Did you go through a thing of like biographies or I don't know what? Bradbury was crazy. And it turned out that he actually wrote some of his books there at that same library. Ah. I didn't know that. I love to read. Um, you know what I loved a lot, though, was the African-American books that were coming out. Todd, Todd Brown had a book, uh, uh, Man Child in the uh, There was Malcolm X. I remember reading it was coming out at the time. And I'm like, we're eating it up because even though I'm Chicano, I'm Mexican, I understood everything they were talking about. I knew about the racism, the discrimination. I was in the streets. I was on drugs. Uh, I remember how Malcolm talked about it, how when he was in prison, books changed his life. You know, and it's like, wow, he showed that it was possible. I didn't have to live with crazy, closed off, crazy world, crazy life, and I could break through, and he was an example of his possible. Yeah. I often wonder and just can't imagine what good things he would have done if he had not been assassinated, because he was powerful. Robert Kennedy was very sad to me. I mean, Martin Luther King was terrible, everybody. I think because I saw him as another one of the guys that would have been a great person. Better than his brother, honestly, but I guess he didn't have a chance. Let's do one more before we get out of here. Yeah, I think what I'm going to do, again, I don't know why I got into this um, personal stuff, but let me do one for my mother. And one thing about my mother and I, as you know from reading my work, I am, uh, my mother was Ravamari, uh, which is a tribe in Chihuahua, Mexico. Anyway, uh, my mother was from this tribe, but she, and you know, most Mexicans don't know what tribe. We're all indigenous, you know. Everybody's doing all these DNAs that are my friends. They say, hey, man. I'm half Native American or more. They don't realize how Native they are. I go away, oh, but that's because we are. But uh, of course we got Spanish and a bunch of other stuff, but we're, we're mostly Native. So this is a poem to my mother who was very sickly. When um, in her twenties, she lost all her teeth. She was very obese. She had diabetes, heart uh, problems. She had thyroid problems. She was in bad shape because she grew up in the ghetto of the Tarahumara Indians. She didn't grow up as a Tarahumara in the traditional lands where they were healthy because they ran 
did all this great stuff. As soon as they left their traditional lands, they were like the unhealthiest people. So we were living in Watts at the time because I moved to Watts when I was two years old. My family moved to Watts. And this is one of my earliest memories ever. It was in Watts and it's called Heavy Blue Veins, Watts, 1959. And it goes like this. Heavy blue veins streak across my mother's legs. Some of them bunched up into dark lumps at her ankles. Mama periodically bleeds them to relieve the pain. She carefully cuts the engorged veins with a razor and drains them into a porcelain-like metal pail called Athena. I'm small and all I remember are dreams of blood. Me drowning in a red sea, blood on sheets on the walls, splashing against the white pail and streams out of my mother's ankle. But they aren't dreams. It is mama bleeding into day and tonight, bleeding a birth of memory, my mother, my blood by the side of the bed, me on the covers and her slicing into a black vein and filling the pail into some dark forbidding red nightmare, which never stops coming, never stops pouring this memory of mama and blood and Watts. Whoa. Like I said, you write very vivid poetry, my man. <laughs> uh, I want to ask you one more thing we talked about before we turned on the recorder, which is uh, you said you're doing this new project with guys who are in solitary confinement. Uh, say a little bit about that because it's just real interesting. Uh, Getting all these guys, um, solitary confinement is a terrible way to go. And in Michigan, the Department of Corrections, they started a project there where they got all these letters, asked all these guys, talk about your experiences, what's going on. They got like 60 some letters, a lot of letters. I'm reading through those letters and they wanted me to write a poem on what I'm getting out of it. And they said, that's up, up to me. So I got like a, almost a 20 page poem that I've put together. I think I'm going to be finished it today. It's, I'm, seminar, I'm doing it right now uh, with some of their language, some of their words mixed in. And just to decry the whole idea that you would put human beings, you know, many more in cells, six by nine, which is the size of a parking place, for years at that time, months, weeks, months, but also for years. It's terrible what we do to people. Almost all of these guys in the Michigan Department of Corrections are black. Um, poor whites. If, if they're whites, they're poor whites. Mexicans, but poor people, basically. And um, it's a terrible way to go. And we need to know this and understand this. I don't believe that punishment resolves any of the issues that people think it can do. It doesn't stop crime. It doesn't do with the trauma. Punishment doesn't work. It doesn't matter what people say. Uh, I'm an abolitionist. I think the system should go. There's no basis for it anymore. I think there's other ways to deal with trouble. You know what I'm saying? Other yeah. ways to deal with people lose their way. Other ways people, even when they do the most horrendous thing, there's really a lot of other things we can do to change them and change our environment uh, versus putting them in prisons and just doing many ways to keep things going. It, it actually doesn't stop them. Yeah. So I'm working on this project. I'm really glad to be able to do it. Uh, yeah. 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 It would actually make a great little chapbook. If it, if it had to stand on its own, because, you know, instead of being in another book. Uh, anyway, uh, just that's a fascinating project. I'm glad you're out there doing all these great things. Meanwhile, running Tia Chucha Press, which we didn't even get into, but folks, it's a wonderful press. Look it up, Tia Chucha, and uh, you can find out what uh, 
Luis has been publishing over the last 30 years. Hey, it's been great talking to you. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Munley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.